The views and opinions expressed by A Little Bit Culty are those of the hosts and don't reflect the official policy or position of the podcast, right, Sarah? Correct. Any of the, quote, fire content, I prefer lava content, provided by our guests, blogger, sponsors, or authors of the opinion and are not intended to malign a religion, a group, a club, an organization, business individual, anyone or anything, unless, Sarah? You're a douchebag. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> also, we're not doctors, psychologists, or wizards. We're just two non-experts trying to make you a friendly, informative podcast based on our experience that we've turned into wisdom. Okay. okay? Good talk. Okay. Hey, everybody. Sarah Edmondson here. And I'm Anthony Ames, a.k.a. Nippy, Sarah's husband. And you're listening to A, a Little, Little Bit, Bit Culty, a.k.a. ALBC, a podcast about what happens when devotion goes to the dark side. We've been there and back again. A little about us. True story. We met and fell in love in a cult. And then we woke up and got the hell out of Dodge. And the whole thing was captured in the HBO docuseries, The Vow, now in its second season. I also wrote about our experience in my memoir, Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. Look at us, a couple of married podcasters who just happen to have a weekly date night where we interview experts and advocates in things like cult awareness and mind control. Wait, 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 wait. this does not count toward date night, babe. We got to schedule that. That's separate. So there's two days we got to hang out? <laughs> we do this podcast thing because we learned a lot on our exit ramp out of Nexium, still on that journey, and we want to pay the lessons forward with the help of other cult survivors and whistleblowers. We know all too well that culty things happen. It happens to people every day across every walk of life. So join us each week to tackle these culty dynamics, everywhere from online dating to mega churches and multi-level marketing. This stuff really is everywhere. The cultiverse just keeps on expanding, and so are we. Welcome to season five of A Little Bit Culty, serving cult content and word salads weekly on your favorite podcast platforms. Learn more at a littlebitculty.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to this week's episode of A Little Bit Culty. It's a podcast about cults. And other things that are culty. We just had such a fun interview and Nippy's, <laughs> Nippy's like, <laughs> I felt a little bit bad because he was a little left out. Oh, it was girl boss time. It was hashtag girl boss, hashtag boss babe. But I kind of feel like by the end of it, we came up with a new definition of what it means to be a girl boss. Which was? Well, people are going to listen to the episode to find that out, Sarah. That's so true. Stick around and find out. But don't buy now. Cash me outside. How about that? Oh my God. Really? Dr. Phil. Is Dr. It? Phil. If you don't okay. know what that is, just Google cash me outside. How about that? Today's guest. Today's guest. Tell us about today's guest. Nippe. Is Emily Paulson. Emily Lynn Paulson. Emily Lynn. She's a badass boss, babe. I know I'm saying this tongue in cheek. But you could have been her and she could yeah. have been you in the organization's respective organizations. She, we are each other's doppelgangers in another parallel MLM called the universe. Yeah. I was so excited when we connected initially over the social meds and social meds, still haven't met in person, but I feel like we're friends. You'll see in the video if we posted on Instagram that we also have very similar matching haircuts, which means that we would have been very easy. Which means very little. But no, it means we would have recruited each other easily for sure. That was the boss babe cut, like the Rachel in the 90s. <laughs> yes, 100%. You just walk in and say, can I get the boss babe mm -hmm. cut? It's a look. It's a vibe. It is a look. It is a look. As most of you know... We've done some episodes on multi-level marketing. Sarah, why don't you take it from here? Yeah. So for those who don't know what it is, 
It's a term used to describe businesses that involve selling products to family and friends and, and recruiting others to do the same. Emily will give another example. We'll dig deeper. We're going to unpack it and circle back and unpack it some more. Okay, <laughs> Too much packing. This is good to know for today's episode, during which we'll be talking to Emily Lynn Paulson, the author of Highlight Reel, Finding Honesty and Recovering Beyond the Filtered Life, and her forthcoming book, Hey Hun, Sales, Sisterhood, Supremacy, and Other Lies Behind Multi-Level Marketing, out in May of 2023. Emily is here to tell us about the very thin line between MLMs and cults. Well, actually, Emily says that they're one and the same. It's actually a $180 billion industry of legal and illegal pyramid schemes that governments both support and protect. Even the UN takes money from MLMs. When she's not writing books, Emily is busy giving TED Talks or spending time with her five kids and husband in Central Oregon. I think mothers of five kids are the actual boss babes. Y'all, I hope you have as much fun as we did. So without further ado, Emily Lynn Paulson. Welcome to Emily Lynn Paulson, the bossiest of the boss babes. That's what your title is going to be. What do you think of that? Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. The final boss. Are you glad to be here? We're so glad to yes. have you. I was trying to think, I was telling Nippy about how we met, like I know not really in person, but like when did we actually connect was the real question. I started listening to your podcast and got your book and obviously I saw the vow so it just kind of all worlds collided when I realized that Nixium was an MLM. I initially saw your New York Times article, right? Like, so I knew all that, but everything was like sex cults, sex cults. And I didn't understand that it was an MLM until I started watching The Vow. And then, of course, I just fell into the rabbit hole of your podcast. But wait, Nippy, we have to address Nexium wasn't an MLM because MLMs are unethical. Right. Oh, yeah. Totally. Well, and, and they're not pyramid schemes because pyramid schemes pyramid are illegal. Schemes are a, yes. Yeah. This was one of the first things. I don't know if you know this because I didn't get into it in my book, but that I was in an MLM before Nexium. No, I did not know yes. that. Yes. Yes. I was. And I don't talk about it too much because I still have family members in it. Oh. But it did make me like ripe for success because I already had a lot of the sales skills. Well, and then did you think, oh, it was just the wrong MLM? Like this one will be the right one. Well, not only that, we were told that it wasn't an MLM. Of course, which <laughs> is wasn't the biggest red flag of all. <laughs> yeah. Like if someone says this isn't an MLM and it clearly yeah. is, like that's the biggest red flag. Yes, but this was a different era of MLMs. Like my mom signed me up when I was in university in 97 and I didn't really start like working on it till like 2001 or two, but I only did it for a couple of years. This is before your era where it was like all about the hashtags and the social media and the wine and the whole yeah. gestalt of yeah. that. <laughs> when it was just like you invited someone over to your house or they hosted a little party for you. I mean, it yeah. could only infiltrate so far. Social media yes. really made it blow up. Yeah. Yeah. You had a different experience in that way, but there's so many overlaps in broad strokes that I feel bad in advance for Nippy because <laughs> he's just like- Yeah. I'm going to be the robot just kind of chiming in here and there. <laughs> but I do have some questions. Yeah. Well, I just want to know, had you guys met while we were in our prospective MLMs, who would have enrolled in? <laughs> oh, I think I think Sarah. You're a formidable foe. Emily, yeah, I yeah. think Sarah one. would have enrolled me. Yeah. Because I was very, I think, you know, you're attracted to what you're attracted to. And I think Sarah's personality in general, I'm like attracted to that, right? Like it, in general as a human being. 
And I think attached to the possibility of community, possibility of growth, possibility of friendship. I mean, that's what I was looking for when I joined. So I, no question, would have been the one to join. I would have been in Sarah's downline. Oh, yeah. So it would have been Sarah and Emily. Yes. And I would have scooped her yeah. up. She's exactly the bright light we were taught to look for. Uh, yeah. I know. Uh, I know. Bright light uh, and also big network. And her why was strong. My why was very strong. Yeah. <laughs> God. All these things, it's like I'm trying not to like throw up in my mouth when I when I say them back. But it's so true. It's all of that was just, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same stuff. Yeah, but you got to talk about it to get rid of the gag reflex. Yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, because it becomes less cringy when you humanize it. And that's totally why I loved your book so much because you really just took it all. You take it all on the chin. Like so many people would dock and run. You know, oh, like, yeah. Oh, shit. But maybe that's also why we're, we're meant to be friends because we, we're just going to like bear all. <laughs> well, that's how you turn your story into wisdom. You have to eat the crow. And then, and then I think once you you tell the story where you're emotionally honest and you take responsibility for what you did, it then allows you a certain credibility in the space where people go, oh, this is a person who's turning what they recognize they participated into wisdom for other people to not do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think throwing myself fully under the bus is like the way that I can tell the story without it being like, oh, you're telling me what not to do, or you're condemning me for my behavior. I mean, it, this is fully my story. And, and it's funny when, you know, the criticism, which I don't read reviews or anything like that, because it's just, you just don't go there. You don't read the comments under the byline articles, you know, but the criticism that comes through is like, oh, but you were part of it. You know, you were part of it. You were scamming all these people, which I know you've heard this before too. It's like, and now you're profiting off of it or whatever. It's like, I could have just quit and never said a thing, but nothing changes that way. Like it doesn't change the fact that I succeeded, you know, air quotes or made money doesn't change the fact that I'm allowed to talk about it now. Right. And that's the only way anybody can be informed going forward. And you're actually one of the more qualified people to talk about it. Normally those people look at like you profited one way that was in your own admission, egregious and, and quote unethical. And sometimes those people don't feel like you get to go thrive again. Right. Only this time you're taking the same skill sets that allowed you to thrive in one domain and putting it in another and you're turning it into a positive. So right. you don't ask for permission for those things. You just got to go do it. No, I have written a book before and it was very much, you know, this is all the shitty stuff I did when I was in addiction. Right. And, and so I, I had the experience of being able to put that story out there and knowing that not only was it cathartic and helpful for me, but it did help other people. So I already knew going into this that I wanted to do the same thing on the same scale that I feel like I manipulated and harmed people unknowingly. I wanted to, to be just as loud the other way, right? I feel like I've said the exact same quote, just as loud. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. This is my doppelganger. <laughs> well, listen, we're, we're obviously big fans of the book and we'll be talking a lot about that throughout the podcast. But for those who are new to the scene here, or maybe have been living under a rock and don't know what an MLM is. I mean, I actually still find that some people, they don't know the term MLM. Like they, they're, they have friends who do it, but they don't know that's what it is. You want to give us a little cliff notes for the 12 people on the listening <laughs> who are listening who don't know what it is? Yeah. So I will say everybody knows what an MLM is, whether they know or not. Right. right? So 
It's basically an unsalaried workforce who has to pay into a company to promote products that they don't get paid for unless someone actually buys them. So it's, you know, you, what you see on social media is be your own boss. You know, I've got my own business, my own small business. And that's the exact opposite of what it is. It's a huge corporation and they make their money by collecting people. They have, you know, people buy in, buy a business kit, and then the money isn't made selling products. The money is made by then getting more people to buy the business kit and buy into the business. And you don't own your own business. You are just an unpaid contract worker. And so the way multi-level marketing makes so much money is that once you buy the business kit, they have your money. You never have to do anything. And that's how these corporations thrive. They literally thrive because so many people fail and they have a you know 99.7 failure rate across the board, meaning people who purchase like lose money immediately. You're already in the negative and most people never actually turn a profit. Don't you wish you'd known all that when Becky invited you to have a drink? You know, I had, and I, and I describe this in the book too, is I had an initial like, eh. you know, I think we all have that little, oh God, it's one of those things. It's one of those things you see on social media. And at that time it was really booming, like, you know, 2013, 2014, it's like you saw MLMs a lot. And it was, again, it's like, you wouldn't know it was an MLM. It's just like, oh, so-and-so has a skincare business. So-and-so has a supplement business. So-and-so is selling leggings. It's all this crap all the time, right? And you might not know what it meant at the time. But for me, I was like, ooh, do I want to be that person? But what got me was I did see that she'd gone on some fun trips. She was seemingly earning money. She was seemingly doing really well and having a lot of fun. And when I met with her, there were a bunch of people there. And it was like, oh, you know, so whether someone had said to me, oh, 99.7% of people fail, I would have been like, but look, right? Like it was that cognitive dissonance of, but I see that she, who I, someone I know, who I trust is doing well. And like, why would she lead me astray? So I don't know if knowing that, because I could have looked it up anywhere. Again, most of these statistics that I talk about in the book they're all readily available. It's all out there. And what, what keeps people stuck and continuing to enroll is that hope that maybe they can be the you know 0.3%. So highly recommend the book and all the juicy details. Will you give us a little cliff notes of what hooked you in terms of, and I always find this so interesting, like what was going on for you emotionally that that was a draw and appealing in terms of being a mom and all that comes with it. Yeah. I think that's the reason so many moms get roped in is because I was looking for something at that time. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I was at this point in my life where, you know, we just had our last baby. We've got five kids and wow. we were done having kids. And I knew that going back to the workforce was not in the cards for me because my husband had a demanding job. Childcare for five kids would have been just stupid. And I didn't know if I had any other options, but I was in that place. Like I think a lot of women are in where you just feel like you've lost your sense of self a little bit. So I didn't know there were any options out there for me. So when this was presented to me, I was like, wow, not only can I escape like tonight, you know, tonight I can get out and actually put makeup on and clothes on and leave my kids behind and go out and meet her for drinks. But gosh, this is like the hope that I can do this all the time. It was just that need for something outside of myself, outside of my mom life that I was really craving. And it was bundled in with this possibility of also earning money and, 
and trips. And so it was just the hope of something outside of my life at the time where maybe I I felt very overwhelmed. I felt underappreciated. Like I think a lot of young moms do. It just, I had a lot of hope that it could be the magic solution. I was just noticing it's one of the consistencies that we saw in the the leggings, Roberta Blevins one. Mm -hmm. It seemed like there's fertile ground for moms in this. Oh, absolutely. Capitalizes on and mom's capacity to network. Like there's a joke I have with like a lot of my male friends and be like, all right, I'll talk to Sarah. You talk to your wife and we'll figure out when we're going to meet next. And it's not a joke because they, they're the social coordinators. They do everything way more efficiently. And then, you know, reservations at this restaurant that night. And it's like, so it seems like there's an infrastructure and like already kind of natural there that that's capitalized on. Oh yeah. I mean, the mental load is, is huge. And the ultimate issue here is that there aren't systems set up for women, right? There aren't women's unpaid labor carries our entire economy. I I could go on about the patriarchy and all that shit, but it's because there's a lack of resources. There's a lack of choices. And so when you're given something that even if it's a really shitty choice, but it's there, it's going to look enticing. It's going to look like something. And I think MLMs do a really good job of not only filling those pain points of you know, being the mom who's at home or being the woman who's, you know, struggling with her career and balancing home life and all that stuff, you feel like you're doing something wrong no matter what. If you stay home, if you work, either way, someone's going to say you're doing the wrong thing, right? But it also packages all the pain points you have just as a female. Like, hey, do you need to lose baby weight? You know, have you put on some pounds? Have you whatever? How's your aging? How's your skin? Like you got some wrinkles, got some crow's feet. I can fix that too. So it's, it back packages all of these pain points into one, which is what makes it so predatory. And then it's your friend inviting you, right? Or your, your, your kid's teacher, or it's these people in proximity to you that you feel like you can trust. And they're in a group mm-hmm. and they wear cute little booties yeah, and cute little jeans and little hats. Like I've seen pictures and I'm like, if I was super lonely and wanting friends, I would totally want to be part of that. Now I'm like, Ugh. yeah, I mean, it does. Super cringy. Yeah. It's like I, when you're, you know, changing diapers at 2am or whatever, like, and you see a picture pop up on Facebook of people on a cruise ship or whatever, it's going to draw you in no yeah. matter what they're selling. Damn Facebook. I mean, more Instagram now, <laughs> but that's a real pain point for a lot of people. It's just the inherent FOMO of like, look what everyone else is doing. And also, like, it's not real. It's not real. Sometimes, you know, sometimes there's there's some truth in like, okay, then maybe they're in, you know, the Bahamas or whatever. But like, you don't know if they're happy or not. You don't know. That was actually one of the things in your book that I loved about like showing how what you posted on social media and that was going on all around you that really wasn't as glamorous. But nobody posts that because that would be stinking thinking. Right. There's always a shred of truth in everything, right? Even like, right. like Nexium, there were some fundamental things that were very interesting and helpful and good. And, and yet there were also a lot of things that weren't like, that's what drew you in. Like the system as a whole was very flawed. And, and so all of these things that you do, it's like, okay, yes, I did go on a trip, but it wasn't really free and I got taxed on it. And, you know, I got drunk and all these other things happened and like, it didn't really help. But what you saw on social media was, was very pretty, right? It's just not the whole story. Tell us about some of the red flags, some of the most cringy things that happened along the way that you didn't really understand what you were looking at till now. You know, looking back, obviously you can see a lot in hindsight, but even as I, as I was going, even the first night when I signed up, 
I think it's not that you don't necessarily see red flags. You know, your intuition does pop up, but it's again, what MLMs are really good at is squashing them immediately, squashing any of those thoughts and preempting any negative thoughts you're going to have before you have them. So they might say like, you know, here's the script, for example, like here's the script of what you should post on social media. Well, your immediate reaction is like, ew, that's not even my words. That's gross. But they'll say to you, okay, this is going to feel weird. This is going to feel weird, but this is how you step out of your comfort zone. And this is how, so everything you do, then when you go into it and you're cold messaging someone and you know, you feel gross about it, you're like, oh, but they told me I was going to feel this way. So all of those intuitive feelings are squashed from the get-go. And that is really dangerous because then you just lower the bar, right? You're like, oh, then you're just sending cold messages all the time. It's no big deal. It's not that you've grown or become stronger or whatever. It's just you've squashed your intuition even more. And you have people all around you then who are doing the same thing. And so you're in this sea of people who are doing the same thing. And then it just adds to that cognitive dissonance of, well, they're doing it too. And yes, it's not so bad. So now what you're doing is just, it's just normal. It's just normal, like business stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Also, you're in an echo chamber. So you're going to get those people to reinforce it regardless. Yeah. And then they start with the, if people do say something negative, if someone does come back to you, you know, they're just a hater. They don't want to see you succeed. It's very black and white. It's never a, you know, well, they, maybe they just like you, but they just don't want to buy these products. Maybe they already have something they like. There's never any rational thought behind it. It's, it's very much thought stopping. And, you know, if you hear a no, it means not right now. It means they just don't understand yet. They don't understand the, the benefit that they're going to get out of it. So just keep working, keep, you know, keep talking to them. And if they say something negative about you, they just don't want to see you succeed. They're just jealous. And we're going to play a little game shortly <laughs> about how to handle some of those okay. thought-terminating cliches and MLM sales tactics. Before you do, I want to mention a point that really stuck out to me that I hadn't considered before, just in terms of how like, this is a society where we're taught that like, you know, safe boundaries and no means no, especially mm -hmm. as women, right? But here is a place where no does not mean no. Yep. Tell us about that. There is a lot of internalized misogyny in MLMs. I mean, there's a lot of internalized misogyny in our, in our world, right? This, and, and so I think it just comes with the territory when you're with a group of pretty much all white affluent women that there's going to be internalized misogyny there. And so you have that as like the foundation. And then you are told that, you know, best, you know, this, this, this company, this system, this team, this whatever structure that you're in is the best. And it's the best thing for you. It's the best thing for everyone. Everyone should want to do this. And we know best. And we know best. And if they don't, if they say no, it's because they're not educated. If they tell you it's a pyramid scheme, they're not educated. They just don't have the information. So don't feel bad about that. They just don't have the information. So then when you say, you know, someone says no to you, someone says no to your opportunity, says no to your products, you automatically are like, okay, well, it's not that they don't want them. It's that they don't understand them. They don't understand this company. They don't understand these products and they will. And, and so it's very ooh, cringy when, again, you're taught consent and you're taught the meaning of no in your life, but yet you're supposed to never take no for an answer in this one avenue. It's 
it's kind of a mind fuck, you know? When you say internalized misogyny, you mean amongst the women and forcing it on the women? Oh, for sure. Yes, for sure. And, and I saw this, you know, many times, you know, in different things that happened, I described one situation in the book where, you know, we were at a convention and someone had been, something was slipped in her drink and she had to go to the hospital. Nothing happened to her, thank God. But, you know, this group of women were like, oh, but did you see what she was wearing? And so that, that kind of stuff where, again, you're in this meritocracy where you are in charge of your own destiny and manifest your own, ugh, you know, all that stuff where it's your work that gets you to this place of success. And so if you do, God forbid, have, you know, you're sexually assaulted or something, then the mindset is, well, it must have been something you did. Like that, that's how fucked up it is. And how could it not be when you are supposedly in charge of your own success and in charge of whatever happens to you, you control your own destiny. Well, why wouldn't you be in control of everything that goes on around you? And anything bad that happens to you must be your fault too. The other red flag that I saw, and I'm pretty sure this happened in our MLM too, although I, I didn't really make the connections till I read your book actually, was was the religious undertones or in your case, overtones that it's also a bit of a mind fuck because it's your, it's all your own destiny or the boss babe, but it's also God. Oh yeah. So, so, so how does yeah. that work? The religious manipulation. So again, if you don't succeed and you're a Christian, you're a faith filled person and this is God's plan for you. And you see so many, so much of this in, in social media posts. Like, I'm so glad God put this company in my life. I'm so glad God blessed me with this and Jesus, all this stuff, right? So if you don't succeed, what does that say about how God feels about you? If you believe God put this in your life, that's a whole nother level, you know, because obviously religion, like believe whatever you want. Like I'm, I'm fully like whatever makes you happy, go, go to town. But religion in its worst manifestation can be very dangerous. We know that. We know that. And so you're adding that intent then to this business. And of course, I use air quotes because it's not a business, but that's what everyone says. It just has all the markers of being potentially harmful, right? And you're going to take that on yourself that, oh, God must, must not love me very much because God wanted me to do this. Hashtag not blessed. Not blessed. <laughs> yes. Indeed. And that was also very cringy throughout your book in the best way possible as I was thinking about all the different people that I was <laughs> overseeing and trying to help, but also, you know, had my own intentions for them. And one of the big red flags that I saw is just your recognition of seeing how like you were helping them, but also like, is it really what's best for them? Right. And like you guys have said this many times too, is you really think you're doing the best. Nobody goes into these and they're like, well, I'm going to screw some people over and then yeah. I'm good. You know, nobody goes into yeah. it like that. Everyone goes yeah. in thinking, I have hope that this could work for me. And I'm going to tell my friends about it because I have hope for them too. So yes, you're benefited from them joining, them buying products, whatever. But I really did want my friends to succeed. I really did want that. So then when you see that it's not actually happening, it's really hard because I'm like, okay, I've done all the things and I'm succeeding and they're not. Why? Well, I've been told it's because they're not doing the work. Well, I'm seeing it with my own eyes. It, it's really hard to reconcile that. You made a comment in one of your your, your interviews where in order for me to make money, other people had to lose money. Yeah. Which I think is kind of like that. That's a hard thing to sit by and watch when you're trying to help these people and you're recognizing that you are doing well because they're doing that. Right. And that's the way the, the structure is set up. Talk about that. How what was that process like? 
It was a long process, a very long process. And once I finally got to that place, and you know, part of my story obviously is, you know, going through alcohol addiction and and part of my awakening was getting sober and seeing that a lot of the amends I had to make were around this business and a lot of the things I'd been saying I couldn't say anymore and kind of aligning myself back with my intuition before I joined. You know, when I joined with obviously I was drinking wine when I joined, right? So it was like my intuition came back online and I was able to understand like what I was doing on a deeper level. And yet still I was like, okay, but, but yet I've done all these things and I'm, I'm here, I'm succeeding. And, you know, I still, I want to help these people succeed. And so you see in the book, I, I, it's like, I put a lot of money back into the company. I put a lot of money back into the people. And I thought for a long time, like, how can I sell people this and then not stay? How can I not stick it out with them? Even if they're not succeeding now, like I still believed it was possible on some level. There was just cognitive dissonance for a long time until it was just so obvious that it was not going to happen. And, And it really was all of the people at the top, every convention, every year was the same people. It was the same people in the stands watching and hoping it never changed. And, and if this possibility, if this opportunity is available for everybody, then you should see more people growing and more people rising to the top. It, it never happened. So it was a very slow process. And, and it was a slow process of knowing like, what do I do now? Because then you have people saying to you, don't quit. The only way you fail is if you quit, you built this. Why would you walk away from this? And it's like, okay, well, I did. Like, and, and also when you're making money, it's like, how do you just walk away from it, right? You know, once you you get acclimated to like, you make the money, you spend the money. And again, a lot of the money was going back into the system, these trips, the car, the all this stuff, the clothes, the, the gifts for my team. You got to pay to play. You got to pay to play. Yeah. And so it was slowly untethering myself from, you know, not spending as much. I wasn't putting much as much back into the system. I, I really started distancing myself from it. And again, like, asking myself, like, how much money is worth feeling this way? Mm -hmm. Also, you hadn't done the math yet and the profit and loss statement, which I thought was really interesting. You're never encouraged to. You are never encouraged to do a profit loss statement, which should be like the first thing in a legitimate business. It would be the first thing any business coach would tell you to do. And you know, even in the companies, every MLM company has their own income disclosure statement. Every single one. You can look it up yourself. They're all abysmal. They are all abysmal and your uplines, the company will talk it away because they'll say, well, lots of people just join. They buy the kit because they like the products. They don't plan on selling. They don't plan on making a profit. But the thing is the company knows, right? The company knows the number of people selling, the number of people buying, the number of people who are actively working and not working. So they could disclose those numbers. Why don't they? Again, because it's abysmal because most people lose money and it's, it's really damaging because then there's this whole sunk cost fallacy, right? Of, you know, you convince someone to join, like, hey, it's a bigger discount, whatever, just join. It'll be fine. You know, don't look behind the curtain. And then they're like, well, I, I already spent this much money. You know, I already, I'm already this invested in this way with these people with this money. And then it makes it even harder to leave. This is the golden age of cult recovery. The more we speak up and share our stories, the more we realize we are not alone. Your voice and your story can empower others. 
This is Sarah, and I'm proud to be a founding collaborator of the hashtag I Got Out movement. Learn more at igotout.org. In Nexium, we called that buying back the dollar. Mm, yeah. And there was a metaphor, the same, same metaphor of like, you know, you're waiting for the elevator and you could take the stairs, but now you've waited so long, you keep waiting for the elevator and then you waste more time. I forget how the dollar thing worked, but it was something about like- It's like a stock. You invest in a stock, but the ROI is not coming. And you keep trying to pay more to get the dollar back, but at a certain point, you just have to cut your losses. Pay it well. It's, you know, you got to spend money to make money. That's what you're you're told is, and, and there's all these stupid analogies on real businesses like, oh, well, you have to, if you had a store, like a store on, on the street in your town and you opened it, you'd have to pay rent, right? So, so buying the products is just the rent on your business. So it's like, what? But that, those things aren't equal, but that's what you're, you're told. And it makes sense because you're like, well, that's true, right? I'd have to have a website and I'd have to have a store with rent and okay, so I'll just buy all this shitty like collagen pudding, right? Like that, that makes sense. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I was going to save it for the end, but I feel like now we're just going to insert it right here because I feel like it would be fun. So let, we're going to play a little game called what would you say now? So Emily, you're the MLM distributor and I'm your upline. <laughs> and I'm going to say to you what you just said. So don't worry about the collagen pudding. Like if you had a real, you know, an actual business, you'd have to pay rent. So it's the same thing. What would you say now? I would say, no, it's not. Go get therapy. No, <laughs> no, I, <would laughs> I was going to say, go, go fuck I would, yourself. <laughs> so I would, no. <laughs> what I would do now, which what I would do now with yeah. anything is ask more questions. I would say, explain to me how that's the same. And spoiler alert, they wouldn't be able to explain because it's not the same. And then it would have the added benefit of them maybe going, oh, gosh, I've been saying this and it actually doesn't make sense. You know, where did you get that information? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I mean, definitely asking questions is better than being snarky, but I kind of feel like being snarky. Can you can you give me one? Now we'll flip the tables and I'm <laughs> I'm the I'm the distributor and you're the upline. Something okay. about like, okay, well, I'm gonna give you an objection. I just don't feel comfortable calling these people because like they're my friends and I don't really want to like get money from them. And I just I, I don't like I don't want to do these cold calls. Well, Sarah, you joined me. Do you think I'm bugging you? Kind of, yeah. It's a bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but you see how that is turned around? It's like, oh, yeah. gosh. Then you feel bad, right? Like, right. oh, yes. I said that and you're right. right. I, you aren't bugging me. And so I'm not bugging my friend either. They're common sales tactics. Were you guys given common sales tactics? Yeah. Like, give me the comfort zone one. I want to respond to that. So, yeah. So, Sarah, I noticed you <laughs> have not been – I've been telling you to go live on Facebook and talk about your products. I noticed you haven't. and you know, I know you feel uncomfortable, but but nothing nothing good happens in your comfort zone. You know, Emily, I would agree with that when it comes to like, you know, maybe speaking in front of people publicly or like running a marathon or something. But this is going against my intuition. And that mm. is the that's not my comfort zone. That's my intuition. So I'm going to listen to that and try a different career. But I wish you all the best with yours. Mm. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> then it would be like, well, you just you just don't want to succeed. You must not really want this. You know right. what? You, you're right. I really don't want this. I don't <laughs> want to be hustling eye cream out of my trunk for the next 10 years. So I'm going to go, you know, pursue other options. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, What could you say to that? What do you say to What that? other options, sir? I don't know. Anything but this. Anything but yeah. this. Pyramid scheme. Anything. Anything. I mean, when you look at the numbers, anything 
with a minimum, a minimum wage job would be more money than 99% of people are making for the amount of hours they're working. Like any, anything, you could do anything. I do think that's like the worst crime is that these people who aren't succeeding really think that they're not doing something. Like there's something they're not doing. They're not trying hard enough. They haven't found the right, they haven't found their Madison. I love the names mm-hmm. in your book, by the way. Becky, Madison, <laughs> Vanessa. Like it's just like, so you're missing a Stephanie. I feel like there should be a Stephanie in there. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I mean? Yes. No Karen? I, wa- no Karen. I wanted Karen, but my editor was like, that is too on the nose. You cannot use Karen. I'm like, oh, fine. Kimberly. 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 Kimberly is our Karen. Yep. Yeah. What's happened to Kimberly? She's still around? Sorry, I just wanted to find out about Kimberly and then you can ask your question. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Heck yeah. She's still around. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, totally. She did. She was nasty. Sure, you're salty. No, she nasty. was nasty. Salty. No, well, I'm salty because like I, I relate so much to Emily and I, you know, our journeys are so similar and it's just like the characters are so similar. But the sales thing, I actually think that like it's just basic sales, like MLM sales which I don't know if you know this, but like Keith was did door-to-door stuff. He was in Amway for a bit. Encyclopedia, CBI was totally MLM. And so his all the sales stuff that he taught us came from all the different like basic sales things, like even Feel Felt Found. Yes. Mm-hmm. You want to tell our listeners what Feel Felt Found is? Yeah. And again, this is all stuff like tactics that work in, you know, just direct one-to-one direct sales, not multi-level you know, all these things are just sales tactics and, and there's, they're legitimate and there's nothing wrong with them, but they're co-opted to sell something predatory, right? That's what right. makes them, it's like you said, what is it? Like the tool in the hands of a chef or a murderer, right? Like Yeah. The knife is a knife. Yeah. It's a different use of it. And so feel felt found is something, you know, even like with my kids could be like, you know, say my son comes to me and is like, I hate math. Math is hard. Okay. Well, you know what? I felt that way when I was your age. Like I, I hated math too. And I, I, I understand how you feel like first is validating. Like I understand how you feel. You know, I felt the same way when I was your age, but what I found is when I just worked at it a little bit every day, it got a lot easier. And then I started enjoying it. Right. So that's a very legitimate use of feel found. It's like, I empathize. I've been there. You know, my experience is the same as yours and here's what's possible. Right. So it offers that hope. So in an MLM, it's just used to squash very legitimate concerns. Right. You don't want to spend $10,000 going to a convention? Yeah. You don't want to spend $5,000 on leggings? You know? Oh, I felt that way. <laughs> I felt that way too. I didn't want to spend $5,000 either. You know? So I understand how you feel. But I found that by putting it on a credit card then and hiding it from my husband, then, you know, mm-hmm. he didn't know about it. We didn't get in a fight. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I lost my ass anyway. Success. No, like, you know, then, yes, then I was able <laughs> yes. to be successful. It's just a way to apply it to that situation. So yes, there's a point where like, okay, you can do feel felt found and, and these tactics. And in your mind, you're doing something positive for these people. And now once you have the perceptual shift that, and I don't know if you felt this way, you felt like you're being predatory or it didn't feel right. Did you feel like that there was someone quote, above you that knew they were leveraging your goodness to go carry out making them money or promoting the company? And did you have any kind of moment of trying to show them that? Or like, I guess it's abusive hierarchy or abusive system, but a lot of people aren't cognizantly going, I'm getting in this to abuse system, like we said earlier, but there must be someone who understands it's a con, it's a gag and, and keeps doing it. And obviously when people leave, they 
like you did, they go, oh my God, this is a con, this is whatever. Is that one person or is it just in a system that people buy in and it isn't easy to pin on one person, one entity, et cetera. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. I think there's different levels of knowing and different levels of denial, right? Like I can say that about, you know, my own upline who was, is like a lovely human being, wonderful person, legitimately wanted the best for me, legitimately thought and still thinks that me being in the company would have been the best thing, you know, very much did not, did not want me to quit because she really believed by quitting, that was the only way I failed that like she believed that and still does. Right. So I think it's just the level of denial, you know, not, not letting that little bit of critical thinking in that maybe I'm not right about this. And then are there people with a level of knowledge for sure? Like I got to the point where I was like, Oh shit, you know, I know this is a scam now. And And how do I untether myself? At what level am I okay being involved? And the added problem, you know, with that is once people get in that deep, they're then controlled in many other ways, right? Like maybe again, their church group is involved. Maybe their best friend is involved. Maybe their entire friendship circle is this MLM. What do you do? Like, I don't feel good about what I'm doing, but if I quit, I will lose all my friends. Or if I quit, I'm actually the breadwinner now, you know, I'm, I'm actually the one making money now. How can I quit this? And what do I tell my family? Like, sorry, you can't eat tomorrow. Right. So there are absolutely people and the people I'm still in contact with who are like hoping to like win the lottery so they can leave or, you know, just like taking steps to exonerate, get, get out to excise themselves from the company or who never really fully bought all into it. So I think it's just a balancing act of how in denial are you? How much critical thinking do you still have? How much control do these people in this company have over you? And what are you willing to still do to be involved? I I think it's impossible to say it's going to be different for every individual person. Yeah, certainly case by case. Do you find it frustrating? Like Sarah and I had a couple incidents with some people that have some of a platform, not that much, but they have diagnosed our leave in a certain way that's like, they've anointed themselves through their own anointment. They're not really demonstrating it, that how we left was, and I forget the word they used, but they were judging how we left, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Oh, self-protective. Yeah. But they're doing it from a place of their own echo chamber, mm-hmm. meaning so someone in your echo chamber who's validated all the time and saying Emily is X, Y, Z. And my response was, wait, I'm diagnosing you. It's not like I don't acknowledge your moral superiority that you've anointed yourself over me by saying, you know, I'm quitting is failing or whatever it is you heard. It's like, no, you're still in your echo chamber mm-hmm. and you're still anointed with your self-anointment and now you're judging us, like it doesn't have validity. But because they're surrounded by people that keep validating them, to your point, they won't ever see it. Right. Gosh, it's there's there's so much there. But no matter what you do, I think you will be criticized because yeah. you know, me speaking out, you guys speaking out, you guys just leaving, it challenges everything, everything that other people need to stay, right? Because if they acknowledge anything you're saying, like even the littlest bit of, oh yeah, they were, you know, that, that sucks that she was branded, ouch, you know, like they can't 
acknowledge that or it will be, again, it'll be negative. It will be, it'll be giving validity to what you're saying and they cannot look at it. So I, I mean, the second I left, it was criticism of, oh, well, why didn't you leave earlier? And, oh, well, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And it's like, it's automatically going to be a defensive reaction because they need to dismantle, you know, me and my character, what I'm saying, yeah, yeah. or they don't have anything to go off of. Right. Yeah. yeah. Once they critique your character and not your behavior and your ideas, you know that you're in a different conversation. Yeah. Or ad hominem attacks. Yeah. yeah. I don't participate in those because they're not having good faith conversations at that point. Yeah. Hey there, listener. Hope you're enjoying this episode and that you're remembering to hydrate, stretch, and unclench your jaws. Sometimes listening to conversations about heavy topics can really make you tighten up, you know? And remember, a little bit culty loves you. Also, come hang out with us on Patreon after you finish this episode. It's fun over there. Fun is good. And now, here's a brief message from our sponsors. It's funny the things people criticize, like, you know, someone was like, oh, well, you made all this money. And sidebar, any article, any interview, they're they're meant to be clickbaity, right? So the, the articles are always yeah. going to be like, woman makes a million dollars and leaves her. And so people are thinking like I'm this person sitting on this pile of cash, right? Like that's not exactly how it works. It was over yeah, seven, like six years, like the money went all back yeah, to the yeah. system. It's like, not like I have this pot of gold now that I'm like, ha, 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 you know, but people will just look at that and go, oh, well, you scammed all these people. You should have given that money back to them. Or you should have published this book for free. It's like, bitch, like, do you do you understand <laughs> no, what it takes yeah. to write a book? Publishing no. works. Like, like, do you understand how money works? It, if you get any of that shit, just send me the link and I will jump in there and comment. And we should just have <laughs> each other's back that way because I get it. I don't think giving them a platform and acknowledging them and getting into Twitter wars does anything no. except raise their profile. That's true. Yeah. We're in a day and age where Attention is the commodity, and normally people who build a skill set get the attention based on the skill set. And people who have qualified journalism and degrees are being lumped in with people who just want quick bait. Yeah. And, you know, Sarah, obviously, like having read the book, like, again, I throw myself completely under the bus. It's all my experience. And, you know, I'm not condemning any one person or thing. And so when I immediately see someone who's like, oh, I can't believe you write this, you know, you're shitting on other women or something. Automatically, it's like, oh, you you have no idea what's in the book. It's interesting because the negative feedback I get is from people who would never read it anyway, and so I can't even take those opinions. They don't even go in my brain. Right. Well, they're not based on you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think that's yeah. one of those things too. Those, <laughs> again, these thought stopping cliches of like, you know, someone else's opinion of you is none of your business, right? And yes, that is true to a point, but the way it was co-opted in MLM was if someone criticizes what you're doing, they don't matter. Instead of saying, oh, this is my mom, maybe who, you know, or my sister who loves me. And it's just giving me some feedback that, you know, maybe my posts are cringy. You're supposed to just put that filter on it of, oh, your opinion does not matter. Your opinion is none of my business instead of being constructive feedback. It's a very valid comment that to not take other people's opinions who don't know the situation, but then it's applied to people who actually care about you and do know about the situation, right? Mm -hmm. I also find too, the more you talk about it is more of an opportunity for you to demonstrate that you're not what's being said. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like again, and you know, this was something I learned in like the recovery process is 
you know, the best apology is change behavior. And I can't do anything about the things I've done in the past. I can't do anything about the fact that I joined good intentions or not. That doesn't matter. Like I can't go back and do anything about it. So all I can do now is try and help educate people. That's it. That's your amends. Yeah. Well put. Your extraction for your waking up process wasn't, you know, one thing. It was many things over time as it usually is. Many incidences on the shelf that eventually falls. All of those things are very gripping in your book. You're, and you're, it really is a great read. And admittedly, it's the first book I've actually read because it's not an audible yet. It will be on audible by the time people listen to this, right? Because you're going to narrate it. Yeah. And damn you, Emily, I had to read your book. <laughs> It's the first book I've read in probably 15 years. I have an incredible bookshelf, but I only listen because I have like ADD and can't sit still. But I finished yeah. your book and it's really good. And that waking up process is is very descriptive. And I highly recommend people reading it for themselves and getting inside your mind and all the different decisions you made. People should read the book. But if you want to give us a couple points of what eventually caused the shelf to break and how you escaped. Yeah. So again, you know, I felt like my intuition came back online and a lot of the behaviors that I wasn't comfortable with, like, you know, the cold messaging, the, obviously I couldn't like have drinks with clients anymore because like I wasn't drinking anymore. So a lot of my behaviors changed, but by the time that happened, I had already assembled such a large team underneath me. Again, once you get to that top of the pyramid, it's not based on your own work anymore. So I was still kind of floating as I saw things I didn't like, as I, I kind of exited myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to write my first book. I'm like, I'm going to go into recovery advocacy. I'm going to you know, go into writing and I'm going to kind of put this on the back burner. And so I kind of thought I could just put this MLM on the back burner. I'll just collect a check until it dries up. That was like what I thought was going to happen. But then the pandemic happened and that's when just the blatant, there was so much predatory behavior around trying to recruit people into MLMs, not just from my company, but just across the board. You know, the FTC sent letters to so many companies because it was all this COVID misinformation, like take this essential oil and it'll cure COVID or join this, you know, you lost your job. That sucks here. Join my pyramid scheme. Like all of these just very predatory messages so that was gross to me. And, and then again, it was a lot of this co-opting beliefs of your uplines that were not vetted by you at all. And I saw all of this, you know, anti-vax propaganda. And again, like you have your own beliefs about whatever, like if you have beliefs about medical freedom that you have, have your own, you know, doctor and your own research, and you have come to these conclusions yourself, like I'm not talking about you. What I'm talking about is your upline says, don't, don't get the vaccine. And then you don't. And then you tell your team not to like, that's fucked up. Yeah. It's the group think. The group think. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it took this crazy turn and then all of this, like, you know, again, like political stuff. And again, it's not about the politics. It's not about the behavior. It's about why you're believing those things. And, and at that point I was like, I cannot be involved in this. And what was happening at the same time is I was still at the top doing nothing. Like I had gone offline. I had stopped like recruiting, selling publicly. People didn't even know I was like still involved in the company. I so I just totally gone dark and I had still earned like the top title. And I was like, that's not right. Like, that's not right. That's not right. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and that, that was it for me where I was like, it really is not my own 
doing. It is not on my own work. It is not on my own accord. And I cannot be associated with this like anymore for another second. Oh, so good. I'm looking at my notes. There's a couple of things that I wrote down, like just as I don't have questions, but I just wrote performative feminism. Oh God. Yes. Can you just speak to that? But like, what does that mean to you? So performative feminism is again, like this girl boss, hashtag boss, babe, be your own boss. It's selling this dream that you can have it all. Right. And then what's really there is your time is completely dictated by the company, right? You have to, it's not that, oh, I can work this into the nooks and crannies of my life. It's you have to hustle around everything else and you have to make it look like this is, again, it's that supremacy. Like this is where you want to be. You want to be home with your kids and working too. You want to have this financial freedom. And yet you're like posting pictures in the hospital when you're giving birth, because for some reason you have to work all the time. It's deeply, deeply anti-feminist to have no control over your time. Right. And, and feminism that doesn't include everyone is not feminism. So these MLMs are not feminist on any level because they require a level of socioeconomic status, right? You have to have money. So it's not feminist. It's not offering opportunities for all women when you are not available to all women. Right. Also, it feels like it compromises the feminine spirit in a lot of ways. And yeah, because there's the system of, it's not collaboration, it's competition. It's elbowing your way to the top. Super catty. It's super catty. It's making money off of your friends. It's collecting people. Like what is feminist about that? Nothing. Sounds like a bunch of alpha males fighting it, over it the does. stage. Like, I mean, just exactly. And that is what it's upholding. Ultimately, at least, you know, it's sold as like a, oh, it's so funny how nine to fives, like real jobs are maligned in MLMs. Like, oh, stick it to your boss. No corporate America. And they're corporations. These MLMs are corporations. And not only are you not an employee who gets benefits in an actual salary, you know, albeit may- maybe it's shitty, maybe it's shitty benefits, maybe it's a shitty salary. I'm not saying corporate America is great. But what I'm saying is these people actually get paid. When you're in an MLM, you're an unpaid 1099 contractor and your wow. money that you pay, it's pay to play, goes to a corporation, right? So it's just, again, it's that cognitive dissonance of you're supporting the man, you're supporting the patriarchy, you're supporting these white CEOs. Yeah. And they are all white CEOs. Are they men? Yeah. Are oh, they yeah. men that run it? The oh, ma- fucking God. God. I mean, look, <laughs> you can look up any MLM. Almost the all of them. Um, almost all of them are the CEOs and the upper management are men. Yes. That kind of answers the question I was asking earlier. Like, are these people at the top totally cognizant that, hey, we're going to run this con here and we're going to leverage women's femininity, call them girl bosses, because we know that they can enroll and we know that there's these areas of vulnerability between this demographic? Do you think it's that conscious? Oh, I think the people at the top there, for sure. I think the women... Because again, it's 85% women are in these MLMs, right? And there's a reason for that because again, women don't have a lot of options available, especially, you know, women of childbearing years, right? As I said, yeah. So so this is seen as an option. So they are sold as like, this is a way to be empowering. This is a way to earn money for yourself. But the people who are making money, again, are the, the people at the top of the pyramid, the very few. And the corporations, and yes, the corporations are completely cognizant of it. Like the reason they use an MLM 
model is because they make so much money from it. And it's also yeah, funny sure. that that reps will say like, oh, we're a billion dollar company. We're a whatever, multi-million dollar company, billion dollar company. But it's the corporation that is earning that money. It's none of the women that are that are doing all of the work. Okay. Yeah. Are you familiar with Douglas Brooks? Douglas Brooks. Oh, yeah, yeah, she talks yes. about him in the book. She quoted him. Okay. So they're obviously abusing a power and you can quantify how they're abusing the power. What have you noticed systems are in place that protect them? Like why isn't there a certain accountability if it's so egregious what they're doing? Yeah. Which is, I mean, we, this is like our third episode on MLMs and it's pretty obvious that like, there's systems in place where it's very hard to stop what they're doing. So MLMs are, they are protected on, on so many levels, right? They are protected politically. There's a, a lobbying organization, which you probably know direct selling organization that supposedly it supposedly regulates MLMs. It doesn't, right? It's the self-regulated body. It does not regulate direct selling. So, you know, there's still an almost $200 billion industry. So they're essentially, they're legal pyramid schemes. Jeez. Yeah, it's huge. And so it's bigger than like Hollywood. It's it's huge. They're, I know. They, it's, I'm just yeah, <laughs> so the government supports them and protects them. You know, lobbyists, politicians are all tied up in MLMs and people don't realize like that, like even the UN takes money from MLMs, right? So there's too much political power. Again, I, I think it all comes down to money. It comes down to politics. It comes down to the people who are involved. And, uh, you know, that's, that's why they're protected. Like they don't have an incentive to say, Hey government, go look at these things that we make lots of money off of. And, you know, we get money from, for our campaigns and stuff like, why would they go down that road? And so the way that they're taken down or investigated is on a very small scale. It's from the FTC, like investigating one MLM, like they investigate Advocare and then they shut that down or they didn't shut it down, but they took away the multi-level component or they investigated Vema and they shut that down. So it's a very small scale or going after distributors. You know, that's the other thing is there were recently a few doTERRA representatives were fined like 15 grand for statements they made during the pandemic. Was the company fined? Don't think so, but the people were. So the company then, you know, has this level of protection because they're just 1099 contractors. They can just go, well, they're not employees. You know, we didn't tell them to say that. Right. So, so they're just, they're so protected at that level and there's no incentive. And because there have been, you know, it was Amway versus the FTC, right. was the first like big thing that the FTC tried to investigate Amway. And because of the way that that turned out, essentially every MLM has modeled itself off of Amway because they were allowed to stay in operation. So all other companies really model themselves off of that so they can stay legal enough to stay in operation. So there's a lot, there's a lot to it. That's why education is vital. Yep. What chapter asked the most about the industry? I think it's that that meritocracy that you are blamed for you're rewarded for your own effort and blamed for your own failure. And also it, it co-ops, there's so many things that chat my ass. So like this could be long, but but it co-ops so many of the things that are already over women's heads anyway. And I say women because again, it's mostly women. You know, we've got diet culture and and all these other things that we're fighting against all the time that are that are just roped into this, you know, and again, like mommy wine culture and all this stuff that like I fell victim to that, that are just roped into this thing that is supposed to be empowering. 
So it, you know, it creates this cognitive dissonance that's very dangerous. And then it, it's also, again, there's the financial exploitation. If you're in a church group, friendships, and the, the way it just seeks to isolate you in, in an echo chamber. That was a lot of things that chat my ass, but yeah. <laughs> when did you make the, the connection that it was a culty experience? And like, how did you figure that out? So I started listening to the Dream podcast. Oh, that's a good one. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, that was the <laughs> first thing I was like, oh God. And, and then I just started kind of reading about cults and I read Ponzinomics which had a whole background of MLMs. And, and so it was just slowly, I, I really started understanding. And then when I found the bite model, so Stephen Hassan's bite model, which I know you guys have talked about a lot. I mean, I went down the list and like, I practically have it memorized because there were so many things on there that I was like, oh my gosh, there is so much behavioral control. There's so much emotional control. There's so much information control. There's so much thought control that, Almost every single thing on that checklist, there there was something I could identify with. Yeah, that's when that's when I knew it was it was a cult. Yeah, mentioned this to somebody recently, and I'm sure you hear this a lot. And the answer was, well, not all MLMs are cults. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I, you know, if that makes you feel better <laughs> to say that, <laughs> but right. like, and we always talk about this in the podcast. Our mission is not to say you're in a cult, and that's a cult. Da da da. It's what's happening in the group. What are the systems of control? What's the behavior from the top? And is it problematic? You don't even have to call it a cult, but you can mm-hmm. say they're controlling the information. They're limiting my information. They're abusing one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, just looking at like, have I ever, have I ever bought something that I didn't want to? hundred uh, percent. Yes. You know, have I ever spent time with people I didn't want to? hundred percent. Yes. Have I ever been coerced to go to something? You know, oh yeah, I didn't really want to go to convention, but I f- was told that leaders show up. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I was told to buy this thing because if I didn't, I would set a bad example for my team. You know, was I was I forced to wear the same thing of everybody else? Well, kind of. Like we all were given like shirts with the company logo on them and uh, you know, we were were sent to these conferences where they were very scheduled and we didn't get to sleep or eat much. Like once you really look in, into it and and then ultimately and I know you guys have said this many times is what happens when you leave? What happens when you leave? It's not that it's bad to be involved in something that's like a little bit culty, right? But what happens when you leave? Do people say, oh, I just wanted to check. Are you okay? You know, good good wishes, right? Good luck in your life. Or do they say, you're a hater. You are not showing up. You know, what's wrong with you? Like, what happens when you leave? I lost all my friends. Oh. You're dead to me. Yeah, you're dead to me. You're a hater. So it's not that MLMs aren't culty. Like, they are. It's to what level have you been coerced and and to what level is your own intuition being squashed and what you actually want to do? And have you even asked yourself that? So again, leaving that little window of what if I'm not 100% right about this? What if maybe there's more to this? What if my haters like might have kind of a point? You also brought up a memory for me that I'd completely forgotten, the most cringiest, and I can understand why I blocked this out, but the recruitment that goes along with both, right? But not only that, but like fighting over people as if they're commodities, Mm. you know? And Nippy didn't have to go through this as much because you didn't really care too much about sales. Am I right, Nip? Like you were like, whatever. Yeah. I mean, also I was kind of like, it was just too awkward. Yeah. 
It was too awkward for you, but you, you, you did recruit here and there. I couldn't get over my limitations. I, <laughs> I just wasn't. But like how many times, especially with Vancouver being such a small city and, and also the acting community, like there's only so many actors in Vancouver and people who know each other. And then people would come to me and like, well, I told them about it first. And then the person, yeah. well, I invited them to the intro session, but I got them signed on paper. Like getting the person on paper, like the application signed meant that you, that was yours. The person was right. yours. Like, would we own right. them? Ugh. It's terrible. It's, seriously, if, that, if there's one thing I could go back and like punch myself in the face over is those conversations. Yes. I can't tell you how many times people who were on my team would, like, I would have to put out fires of, but I talked to her first and she recruited her and, you know, fighting over who owns someone or she's, you know, she brought products from her, but she says she wants to join me. And Jesus, it's, it's be- so and it horrific. just highlights that the financial incentive, right? Like yeah. mm-hmm. they don't care about you. They just want your money. That's all. Ugh. Okay. What do you say to people who like, obviously if they know anything about you and do their research, they're not going to invite you to an MLM. I'm guessing no, you haven't been invited to an MLM. I have actually, I'm like, are you serious? Or even just another something. Is there anything that you could say to people or that you would share with people to say to people if somebody invites them to like go for wine and check out a business opportunity? Yeah. I mean, I would say, what's your level of friendship, right? That's the first place to start is, is this person even someone who's actually in my life or is it a friend like reaching out who I haven't seen for 20 years? And that's the stopping point, right? I would say now, like I would never even say yes to go meet Becky for wine, right? Because I would set up that boundary of, I know she's not wanting to have a friendship here. Okay. So that's the first thing is just evaluate where that friendship is in your circle of people. And then, you know, be compassionate. Like, Hey, I'm happy for you that you're doing this. You know, I don't support MLMs. If there's some other way I can support you, you know, please let me know in the future. I like that. When you get out. Yeah. When you get out, I'll be here to help you or here. I'll be like, here's my book. Here you go. I think ultimately what as consumers, you know, anyone listening to this who is like, oh, I'd never join an MLM or something, but you know, I might like buy a spatula from my friend who's selling Pampered Chef or whatever. Ultimately understanding that that is not support because at the end of the day, your friend is getting very little of that sale, whatever it is, your friend is getting very little of that sale. Their upline's benefiting someone you don't know, their upline's benefiting, their upline's benefiting and the company's benefiting, right? So if you care about your friend, ask what your friend needs. Like, can I come over and babysit for you? Give you a gas card or something. Like there's ways to support your friends without keeping them more roped into the MLM because that's what you're doing if you're buying products from them. So so being a friend to them and giving them support in other ways. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes this can make you a hater, make you the unsupportive person. But all you can do is just be the soft place to land when and if they ultimately do realize that, you know, they're in a harmful system. And that's so much kinder than saying, you're in an MLM cult and that's mm-hmm. for dumb people <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. I just imagine being that person and feeling like, oh, well, she's not into what I'm doing, but she is so supportive and she does care about me and not feeling judged. Because I, th- I think your book also really explains the the mindset of being in it and being in that righteous us versus them. We're the best group. And anyone who questions it, especially family members, right? There's also this element of like, I'm going to prove you wrong. You think I, you think this is bad? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to succeed at this. I'm going to get to diamond, royal empress, lady-in-waiting level. 
Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, if you like, if you see someone falling victim to this, you know, the best thing you can do is just be the soft place to land because the like likelihood is that they're not going to do well. Yeah. Can't say that I did that well when I left. I was so angry. Yeah. It's hard. It is hard. There is anger, that realization of like, oh my gosh, I was brainwashed. Yeah. That sucks, you know? But ultimately, I know that I looking back, like the people who came at me and saying, oh, hey, you're, you know, you're, you're scamming people or whatever. You know, I would have thrown this book in a fire 10 years ago. Yeah. Thrown it in a fire, right? Totally. Nippy, do you remember when we saw those ex- I we'd only been out for a year or so and we saw two people who were still in on the seawall on New Year's Day and I was like happy new years and they like ignored me and looked like I might attack them. Do you remember that? Inner peace, Sarah. Inner peace. And Nippy was like all calm and then I was so mad that they totally ignored me. Like these were friends of mine, like good friends of mine and then I was like yeah. shunning is not humanitarian. <laughs> <laughs> and Nippy's like you can't do that. I'm like I don't give a fuck. They're so hypocritical. You can't be a humanitarian who shuns people. He sh- they're shunning oh. me because I left. Like, fuck you. So yeah, it's I a know. little bit of that left to me. I mean, ultimately, if if someone else saying something about their own experience hurts you or invalidates you or makes you feel some sort of way, <sighs> you are either part of it or you're in denial. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you ought to be curious. Yeah. Right. You ought to be like, hold on. Hold on Tell me more. What happened? Yeah. Ask mm-hmm. questions. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I'd been in this emotional state when I left. So I could have been like, I'm leaving now and I wish you all the best and I'll be here if you have any questions. There was no, no chance. Of course not. I mean, I was like No, I mean, but that that's the whole thing. That's what the calm accuser, the narcissist calm accuser has going for them. They make ad hominem attacks around your character. And then when you respond in kind, they go, You seem to be quite in a lather about this. And they make it about your reaction. And that's compounding the abuse. So it, it's it's complex. It's more complex than people like to admit because they don't want to admit that that's possible. But you know that's the power of that kind of narcissist, you know, person who's calm and disconnected because they can always look calm yeah. while you're pissed off, and you're actually the one that's feeling and emotive and has empathy when you get pissed off, and that's okay. Yeah, and I think you have to get to some level of anger when you leave these things. You wouldn't leave if you weren't, like I was in that place for a very long time where I was like, it's fine, I hate it, but like nothing, it's fine. I had to get to that point where I was like, I fucking hate this. I had to get to that point. So I think that's, it's, it's a totally normal human reaction to feel angry. And I think it's at times normal to go be angry. Yeah. I was a little more comfortable with that. Initially than we all have our Sarah skill sets. Was. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guided my anger yeah. appropriately, I think. I don't think I put it in the wrong place. And I'm so glad you put yours into this book, Emily, because it, it really is a, a gift. And I'm pretty sure I said something really wise about wh- how, why your oh, book yeah. is so great. Will you read it? Read us the back Do you cover? want me to read it? I will. Yes. Oh. yes. <laughs> okay. I love it, Sarah. I okay, love it. So this book is a must read for all women, especially those struggling with the deep ache to belong, be successful, or feel their self-worth. Hey, Hun is at once a cautionary tale, an educational service, and a vulnerable memoir. It's essential reading for anyone considering joining, trying to escape, or healing from the toxic, culty structure that is MLM. Sarah Edmondson. I'm so proud of us. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, but Me seriously, I'm, pr- I'm proud of you. But I, I got I, I, an episode doesn't go by where I don't get emotional, and the emotional is not is not self aggrandizing, which it may appear to be. It's it's emotional because 
it's just like the recognition of all the shit that we've been through in different ways and to come out the other side and be able to support each other, like actually support each other in a true sense of the world. We're not, not performative, not, you know, in a gross way, just like, no, you, you did the right thing and I can help bolster you a little bit in some way. Makes means a lot to me. Yeah. And I would say that's more hashtag girl boss. Than the other, like to button it up. Yeah, when you when you can promote someone else and and know that it doesn't benefit you necessarily, right? Like it's hard to come out of that. It's hard to not see people as numbers after you've done that for a long time. So to have interactions where it's like, you know what, I like post about your book because I loved it, not because I'm getting anything out of you or or whatever. Like it feels good to be in that place. And doesn't it also feel good to see people and not like have an ulterior motive, just like meet them, be like, oh, where are you from? Not like, what product could I sell you? And for them to not think you have an ulterior motive. I, I didn't realize how on edge other people were like yes. with, oh God, what's she going to try and sell me <laughs> oh, today? Oh, totally. Totally. Well, and the real yeah. friends that stuck it through those years are the ones you, you know, you can hold on to. I know. God bless them. Really proud of you. Tell our listeners where they can find you and how important it is to pre-order, which I didn't even know when I wrote my book. Oh my gosh. Yes. So much that goes into it. So you can get my book anywhere, support your local bookstore. I always suggest that they can get any pre-order you want. It's available anywhere books are sold, you know, the big box stores too. And pre-orders are really important because they show your publisher that people actually want to read the book and it goes into, you know, first week sales that your book can get promoted on lists and junk and all that stuff. So it is very important. So if you ever have an author that you love, doesn't have to be me, always pre-order their stuff. What do you think, Sarah? Want to be a boss babe still? I do. I think I'll pass. Two things. I think I'll pass on the boss My babe. brother, Devin Edmondson, who lives in Vancouver, loves to give my sister-in-law like boss babe paraphernalia just for fun, like little notebooks that say things like hashtag crush it and, you know, you got this and live your best life. Live, laugh, live, love. Live, love, love. And uh, I feel like I can't wait to- God, so awesome. I'm going to send her a copy of this book. Those two are a bit younger than me. I'm not going to say how old or dates me, but there's a, there's a certain demographic that's like- all into the hashtag boss babe phenomenon. Like just think about what would have happened if Nexium was more like even 12, 10 to 15 years later. Uh, there had been dead bodies. We didn't use social media, right? Oh, you mean had it started yeah, 12, like 15 had, years later? Instead of 1998, yeah. if it started in 2008 or even 2013, it would have been a very different beast. Nope, wouldn't have been in it. Well, I also don't think it would have outlasted like just the tackiness with the sashes. And one of the things I forgot to mention that she said in her book was that all of these MLMs have these crazy titles for the next level, like Ruby Director and Diamond Tiara. And and some of them sound like the title of a Hallmark movie, you know, Royals in Waiting or Lady in Waiting, whatever. It sounds like a Hallmark movie is, you know, where my worlds collide. But just thinking about how if Emily had been in Nexium, she for sure would have gone to senior proctor or even counselor or senior counselor. Don't you think? Hard to say, Sarah. Hard to say. <laughs> to be so checked out. <laughs> I just, I just don't is, care about that. This is not your world. Yeah, this yeah, is no, this is the hashtag boss babe world. Yeah, it was. But hey, that's all right. Hashtag boss babe. Well, I do hope you find us on Patreon for the live Zoom with her. And it's going to be dope. Maybe we'll even invite Roberta Blevins and have like a little... MLM three-way. 
Oh my God. I'm just going to watch. Okay. <laughs> I'll be on mute. I'll have a beer and I'm just going to watch Boss Babes boss out. That sounds okay. great. Don't forget right. to buy Emily's book. Check out her link in our show notes and just have a great day. Just go crush it. You got this. TBT. No, leaders lead. Leaders lead. Live your best life. Live, laugh, love. Sinking down to the depths of the ocean. Hope you liked this episode. Let's keep the conversation going and come hang out with us on Patreon, where we keep the tape rolling each week with special episodes just for Patreon subscribers and where we get deep into the weeds of unpacking every episode of The Vow. And if you're looking for our show notes or some sweet, sweet swag or official ALBC podcast merch or a list of our most recommended cult recovery resources, visit our website at alittlebitculty.com. And for more background on what brought us here, check out Sarah's page-turning memoir. It's called Scarred true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. It's available on Amazon, Audible, narrated by my wife, and at most bookstores. A Little Bit Culty is a TalkHouse podcast and a Trace 120 production. We're executive produced by Sarah Edmondson and Anthony Nippy Ames, with writing, research, and additional production support by senior producer Jess Tardy. We're edited, mixed, and mastered by our rocking producer, Will Rutherford of Citizens of Sound, and our amazing theme song, Cultivated, is by John Bryant and co-written by Nigel Aslan. Thank you for listening.